in a global industry where anything can happen, where mistakes can cost far more than dollars. One oil and gas sales expert, one HSE professional, and the greatest PPE provider on the planet must come together. Two men, one brand, one mission. Red Wings Oil and Gas HSE Podcast with Mark LaCour and Patrick Pister starts now. Hey, it's Mark LaCour, and this show is for everybody who has an interest in HSE in the oil and gas industry. Brought to you by Red Wing, the leaders in PPE, ensuring your people go home safe every day. And this is episode 16. Joining me today is my different co-host. How you doing today, Misa? I'm doing great. How are you? Very good. And you and I have a bit of a history, don't we? We do. Yeah. We actually, uh, I actually interviewed you for my blog about a year and a half ago. Yeah, that's right. You did. And that, that ended up helping you professionally a little bit, didn't it? It certainly did that. I showed uh, Brian over here what it, I can do, and that's it, how he hired me. Yeah. And so we have uh, Brian, is it Dunnigan? It's Dunnigan. Dunnigan on. How you doing today, Brian? I'm great. Thanks. Yeah. And Brian, you have a very interesting company. Let's talk a little about What's the name of your company? The name of the company is IFO Group, and we're a safety and risk consultancy. And you have a fascinating background. Let's talk a little about how you ended up here. Well, actually, I just got my start in the in the fire service. I started off as a firefighter paramedic, and that's how I put myself through college. And actually just accidentally fell into the uh, safety business. And you've, you've worked for some of the big companies out there. I have. I've worked for Shell. I've worked for Halliburton, SGS, and then... Uh, Went out with some partners on our own uh, a couple of years ago. Yeah, and so IFO Group, you do so many things that that touch HSE. You want to kind of rattle off some of the stuff y'all do? We do everything from traditional accident investigation services to process safety management, fire protection, auditing. A lot of the more technical HSE uh, services is what we offer. We're definitely on the uh, on the more technical side of HSE. Yeah, and um, let me stop here and pause and let me back up. Um, Patrick Pister's still on the show. Patrick had a conflict today. Uh, when I came out here um, to meet Brian and, and Misa, I asked Misa if she would actually join as a co-host, and she graciously volunteered did. So everybody out there that's a fan of Patrick, he didn't go away. He's just busy, and uh, Misa stepped up and is going to try to fill his shoes. So, um, so Brian, so y'all do a whole bunch of things. We had a very interesting discussion today over lunch. Over something that I think a lot of the oil and gas industry kind of sticks their head in the sand, um, but you brought some great points. Let's talk a little bit about an active shooter situation. Sure. For what we've seen is a lot of companies, when, when we come in and help them with their emergency planning, haven't done a very good job of recognizing the risks that workplace violence presents to the average workplace. And when I say average, I mean literally every workplace has a risk of uh, uh, suffering from a workplace violence incident. And what was that stat you threw out today? Workplace violence is now, according to the BLS, the third leading cause of occupational fatalities in the United States. Yeah, so if it's the third leading cause, you as a company, as an HSE leader, need to do some risk mitigation around this. And, and you told a fascinating story. You know, the old Marine in me pictured this in my head perfect, like, wow, I never thought about this. Talk a little bit about the active shooter uh, scenario in something like a refinery. So... I previously taught a uh, instant command course for a, uh, a large oil and gas company that has refining operations here in the Houston metro area. And the refinery manager and, and the other management at the refinery were posed with the question of what would you do if there's an active shooter that gets into the refinery? And unfortunately, they had not really actively considered that as a, a really serious risk. They had 
all of their previous training and drills had centered around more traditional risks like fires and explosions and, and other process-related accidents, and that's appropriate, but they had not also looked at the, really the real risks of something like that occurring, and they weren't really prepared for it. Yeah, and so uh, you told a fascinating story like, well, what do you do if you hear on the radio as an active shooter? And kind of kind of tell that story again about how you sure. decapitate the management team and you gave them scenarios. Sure. So one of the things that we presented to the assistant refinery manager, who was the incident commander for this particular scenario, was what do you do if you're suddenly told there's an active shooter in the facility? What are you going to do? And his response initially was, well, we're going to sound the emergency alarms and evacuate the facility. And we immediately pounced on that. Great. Now you have flushed all of your employees and contractors out into the open. And that's exactly the scenario where an active shooter is going to inflict maximum casualties. If you, you flush everyone out into the open where they can, uh, and they end up being funneled through a, a choke point like an emergency exit, uh, that's really a, the worst case scenario for an active shooter to, to inflict a large number of casualties. Yeah. And like I said, when, when you told that story, it's like, it, it's like it popped in. It's like, he's right. You know? So what in that scenario, what would be one of the suggested courses of action? Well, one of the biggest things you have to do is make sure that you've actually planned for those kind of eventualities and the employees and your contractors actually know how to respond in that sort of a situation. And you can't just leave it up to, well, we're going to follow our normal emergency response plan because you're looking at two different, markedly different risks. You know, how you respond in a fire explosion event is much different from how you would respond in an active shooter event. Yeah, and we talked a little about even things like, have you formed relationships with local law enforcement? So do they know the plant? Have you given them a tour yet? I mean, all that stuff makes total sense. But once again, until you brought it up, it never even occurred to me. We uh, did some work for a client in Mexico, and in Mexico... A lot of the uh, oil and gas assets are protected by the Mexican Marines. And one of the things that when we did that risk survey for that company was we noted that all the Marines were chambering armored piercing, armored piercing ammunition in their weapons. And obviously, if you have a gas facility, you don't necessarily want people no. firing <laughs> off armored piercing ammunition in a gas facility. Right. Yeah, it does too much damage. It'll puncture too many things. You're better off with a soft load that will not damage as much as something's armor piercing. That's right. They uh, they're, they're, they were doing the right thing. They had provided security for the facility, but had never really looked at the risk of, you know, we allow you know these people to discharge weapons in our facility in the event we have some sort of incident, but they don't know what to shoot at. And oh, by the way, they're chambering armor piercing ammunition, which is as you noted, the wrong, probably the wrong load to be chambering in that sort of situation. What is the response time for the police department or anybody else to show up to save somebody from an incident like that? It's, it's extremely variable. It depends on the jurisdiction. And in some cases, just luck. You may get very lucky and there's an officer around the corner when the call comes in. And uh, you may be unlucky and it may be a 15 or 20 minute response time if your facility is in a more a rural setting, which a lot of plants are now, that's not unusual. Or it's a well site, for example. You may be waiting an hour for a law enforcement response. So these typically, these events are typically over in minutes. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And and, finery's not clean cut where you just, you know, have hallways, right? 
you know, miles and miles of pipe uh-huh. that, that only they know where it is. And, and the point you brought up earlier that, you know, things like refineries need to um, give active tours to their local law enforcement. So if something bad does happen, the police know where to go. They know the layout of the land. And, and I don't, my recollection, I don't know many refineries that have ever done that in the U.S., there's some that have, and, and some there's certainly some of the clients that we work with on the emergency response planning side. That's something we strongly encourage clients to do is engage not just with your local fire and EMS services, but also reach out to law enforcement uh, and not just for doing things like traffic control, making sure they know what the layout of the facility looks like. They know what they can and can't do as far as discharging weapons and all those sorts of things because to the average layman, and in this case, most law enforcement's a layman when it comes to the oil and gas industry, they don't know necessarily what uh, the layout of a typical refinery looks like. Yeah, and this all goes back to planning, right? If, if you haven't planned for a response or planned how to mitigate risk, you're setting yourself up for, or for some heartache, right? So planning is kind of the root of, of almost all of this. It absolutely is. And... And that's where a lot of companies seem to be falling very short. Uh, we're seeing a lot of uh, companies that are, are trying to do the right thing and provide at least some basic training, but uh, it appears that that's probably not really enough. It's, uh, you know, we, we see customers that or clients that are using PowerPoints and that sort of thing to teach employees how to respond in an active shooter event or other workplace violence incident. But that's really not enough. You really have to arm your employees with the right tools so they know how to immediately respond and improvise if necessary to protect themselves and their coworkers. Yeah, and while we were talking earlier at lunch off the mic, uh, you brought up the fact that y'all actually will go out and play adult versions of hide and seek in this type of scenario so that people actually have to go hide and figure out what they can do and what they can't do. That's, that's how you really learn stuff. You're not going to learn that from a PowerPoint. That's right, because it may be the right solution for your facility may be to teach people to, uh, if you're not able to run, that you hide. And, and that's a big tenet of uh, many active shooter training programs is run, fight, hide, or run, hide, fight. Fighting is the last resort, but hiding is your second resort. If you can't run away, then you hide. And unfortunately, most adults haven't played hide-and-go-seek in a very long time, and especially not when the consequence of getting found is getting shot. Yeah, and, and I, when I think about it, even you know in our offices, I don't know all the places I could hide in my office because I've never done that scenario. I mean, it's gonna be the same way in a plant, in a refinery, in an office building, you know, and unless you actually go through it and figure it out ahead of time, if unfortunately something would happen, you don't have the options you would have if you would have had the right training. When we teach these kind of classes, one of the things that we teach, especially in the longer classes, is how to effectively find a place to hide and once you've found a hiding place, how to barricade or secure that hiding place. Uh, and what you're trying to do is buy time. Right. Time is going to be extremely valuable in these scenarios. You're buying time for law enforcement to arrive on the scene and neutralize that shooter or for that shooter to neutralize himself. A lot of times, very frequently, the shooter will actually take themselves out once they're confronted by law enforcement. Yeah, and if you buy yourself time, it just increases your chance of survival. So in this case... Every minute you can buy is is going to buy you lives. Right. So another thing that we talked about at lunch, which which was great. In fact, I had to stop us talking about it at lunch so we could actually get on the mic and finish the conversation here for our audience, is we're also looking at things like accident investigation, something that's like is a cornerstone of what y'all do. Right. So on a piece of that, 
it's on the emergency planning side as well. And it's just not planning well for how do you handle things when you've had a serious incident, you've had a fatality, you've had a, a, an employee that's seriously injured, and you've got people that are emotionally attached to the event or have a, a conflict of interest, really, that are investigating the incident. And that's also a pretty serious issue for us that we see as more of a serious issue for our clients is you have people that are maybe not as experienced as they need to be with doing those kind of investigations. And they make a lot of errors that uh, end up causing themselves and their employer a lot of grief down the line. Yeah, and there's automatically going to be a bias. If, if you work for the company and, you're, and you actually have an incident and then you're on that investigation team because you work for the company, you can't help but introduce a bias. Well, even if you've really bend over backwards and you, you try to make sure you're not being biased, you're, not, you're still going to be accused of being biased. There's, there's going to be an implicit bias there uh, when you're doing an investigation and you're basically investigating yourself. Yeah, and then the fact that later on, if you haven't been trained properly how to do an investigation, you're going to miss stuff, right? Um, you may not have accurate drawings. You may not have the right pictures. You may not have enough witnesses, um, that sort of stuff. Let's talk a little bit about that. A big part of our practice, as we said, is an excellent investigation, but it's mostly uh, when we're retained to do an investigation, it tends to be fatalities, major bodily injuries, or fires and explosions, or other product releases where there's there's a lot of consequences for the, for the client. And what we've seen is when they do those initial investigations in-house or they have someone that's, that's directly attached to the incident to do the investigation is you can definitely tell that there's a problem there. There's, there's a big role to be played there for experience. You know, myself, for example, I've done a lot of fatality investigations in my career and in my early investigations, I, I readily admit I made mistakes that certainly were preventable in the investigation, and I've certainly learned from that. And the problem is those are things that are really difficult to teach uh, with anything but experience. So, you know, that's where, you know, really experience with doing fatality investigations, with doing major process investigations really plays a huge role in whether that the outcome of that investigation is is positive for the organization. Right. And just the fact that you've done it so much automatically means that it, it's going to be better. Whereas hopefully, knock on wood, uh, most people that work in the oil and gas industry hopefully have never had to do a major incident. Or, and if they've had to do it, it's been very few times. So that expertise that you have is built upon years and years of doing it, which only helps the oil and gas company get a good, accurate uh, investigation. And I would never wish for someone to get that kind of experience themselves. Myself and my fellow investigators, I don't think any of us are ever enthusiastic when someone calls and says, hey, we need you to uh, come on out here and we've had a fatality and we need you to do an investigation. I mean, none of us were ever happy about having to go out and do a fatality investigation, but we're good at it. You know, we've done a lot of them. We know where are all the the pitfalls in a case like that. And to our benefit, anyway, we don't know the victim personally. And that's something that we see play out over and over again when the investigators know the victim uh, or victims, it plays a huge role in, in some of the, the errors that we see in investigations. And then when, when y'all do an investigation, because you've been involved in litigation so much, you know how to do the investigation, not only properly, make sure you capture everything, but you're thinking about the future at the same time like this, hey, this may be useful if there's litigation involved. Let's talk a little bit about that. Sure. Here in the U.S. anyway, Virtually any incident that involves a fatality or a major bodily injury 
is almost always going to result in litigation at some point. And if you're not considering that as a factor from the very first moment of the incident, then you're committing an unforced error. You just really are handicapping yourself and the organization when that inevitable litigation occurs, you've really set the stage for some big problems down the road. Yeah. And so, you know, anybody out there is listening, um, hopefully you can see the value in having an expert with a huge domain uh, knowledge being an independent third party and has done it so much that they know what they need to capture to help in case of any future litigation down the road. It's, um, you know, it's, it's interesting, Brian, this, um, this downturn, unfortunately, a lot of HSE professionals have had to do more with less. And, you know, nobody, and, and, and I know this for, for a fact, nobody in this industry wants anybody to get hurt at all. It's, it's, it's in our hearts, right? Yeah, we're measured on it, but it's in our hearts. With HSE people out there having to do more with less, one of the things they have to be careful of is that they don't accidentally start increasing incidents because they don't have enough manpower. And, and you can only do so much with the number of people that you have. That's true, and I think that's going to be an ongoing issue for the for our profession, probably for years now. We're losing an incredible number of experience and talent that is not going to be replaceable, not for the foreseeable future. And I think uh, that's going to be, uh, I wouldn't say it's an insurmountable challenge, but I think companies are going to have to put a lot more effort into retaining the expertise that they have and building up additional expertise as quickly as possible. And that's going to require, you know, unfortunately, we're still in the midst of a bit of a downturn or a big downturn in investing the the resources that you need to make sure that your HSE folks are getting that kind of expertise and training that they need so that they have the tools that they need to be able to do this kind of a job successfully and not managing on a shoestring. And I know that's a hard case to make right now. Yeah, it's um, and one of the things that's different about this downturn is a lot of the senior people in HSE unfortunately, either have been laid off or they've taken a package. Traditionally, when you bring somebody new right out of school, you have all these, I call them old timers, but you have the guys been doing it for years and years that take them under their wing and train them, that mentor them. This downturn, that's going to disappear, or a lot of it's going to disappear because the, the more experienced guys are gone, and when the newer young guys come in, there's not going to have the wealth of experience to help them get up to speed. And it's, you know, I, you know, once again, it's, it's not a blanket statement, but it's something that I'm a bit concerned about with our industry. And, and one of the ways you can address that is actually, you know, a company like yours, you can actually come in and help supplement these HSD departments until they get up to speed and you can help them get their people up to speed. Yeah, that's a real benefit we can provide to clients is being able to provide expertise on demand to fill holes that you don't uh, have anybody in house to be able to handle. And that's something that's, you know, really invaluable for a lot of companies when you can't find the right person to do that, or you don't need that expertise very often, but when you need it, it's critical. Yeah. And it's, um, it's, it's be interesting to see what the future brings. So I'm hopeful and, and I have a passion for our industry, but like I said, I've seen a lot of senior HSC people leave the industry and then they're not coming back. Unfortunately, if they, even if they do come back, they won't be in the numbers that we need and they'll only be part-time. Yeah. Another thing we talked about is a lot of people, let's say a lot of young people never consider uh, HSE as a career. In fact, a lot of the people I know in HSE in oil and gas either stumbled into it or, or fell into it, but you actually can now go out and get a degree in HSE. That's true. There's a lot of, there's, I wouldn't say there's a lot of schools, but there's, you know, there's a number of four year colleges, universities offering uh, safety related degrees. It's certainly a, a lot better situation than it was 20 years ago. 20 years ago, you got a degree in something else and then you, you learned how to do 
HSE from uh, your peers and from your uh, your mentors. And that's where, you know, the universities and the colleges have a much bigger role to play now to make sure that our next generation of HSE folks is prepared to accept those kind of roles in the next 15, 20, 30 years. Yeah, and for anybody listening, it's not only gas. I know the whole world called it, calls it EHS, but I'm sorry, we call it HSE. It's the same thing. Yeah, it's uh, it's interesting to watch um, the schools ramp up, um, knowing that this education is vital for these young people. They want to step in this role. But the other thing is, a lot of young people take that degree, that HSE degree, and they go somewhere else. Outside of oil and gas, there's this misconception that the oil and gas industry is is a dangerous place to work, and that's just simply not true. Matter of fact, um, here in the U.S. last year, statistically, it was safer to work in the oil and gas industry than it was to work in real estate. Right? We've improved safety metrics so much. This is a very safe industry to work in. So if you're a young person out there and you're looking to go down that HSE uh, route, look at the oil and gas industry. We have a, a wealth of opportunity for you, and it's a great place to work. This, this industry is an industry of people doing business with people, and it's one of the things I love the most about it. No, I completely agree. You know, We don't just serve the oil and gas industry. But it's obviously, you know, one of the most important industry sectors we serve. And I've got a big personal attachment to the oil and gas industry. You know, my family has been in the oil and gas industry for many, many years. I've had a lot of family members in the oil and gas industry. And certainly, you know, it's it's a great career for someone looking for a great profession and a great industry that, that really cares about their people. Yeah, so let's switch subjects a little bit. This is something we haven't talked about. One of the things I see that is both a blessing and a curse in HSE is technology. The technology is there to make things so much better, to actually be able to f- track data that no- a human couldn't normally see. But the curse is typically an HSE system is forced upon the HSE people and the people in the field. So then they don't put good information in there. And so then that data, which could be valuable, is not valuable anymore. What's your take on the technology that's creeping into HSE? Good thing, bad thing? I think it's a good thing. I think it needs to be implemented a lot better than it is. I completely agree with your comment about a lot of field folks feel like HSE management systems get crammed down their throat. You know, this is a case of really at the end of the day, bad management system implementations, including on the technology side. You know, the folks that are contemplating implementing systems like that, this is a case of you've got to do a good job of project management and really engage your stakeholders. Believe it or not, your stakeholders are not necessarily the guys sitting in the corner offices. It's the folks out there in the field that are going to get stuck using this thing. Yeah, the only the companies I've seen that have pulled this off successfully and made it valuable, that's actually how they did it. They got the people in the field buy-in. Like, look at number one or number two. Which one's easier for you to work with? Which one can I put the information that's vital and what information's not vital so I don't waste your time doing it? And the companies that engage the people in the field first and then figure out a solution are the ones I've seen be most successful in implementing technology. Sure. We did a very large management system project last year for a company, an international owned gas company that needed a integrated management system for their offshore and their onshore operations. And that's exactly the tact we took. You know, we spent a lot of time on the front end making sure that we had that feedback from all the end users that was going to be applicable when we started basically developing their management system. And I think that based on feedback, we were extremely successful with that. And a big part of it was, even though initially the client challenged us on exactly how much time was being spent on getting that user feedback, I think we clearly proved that it pays pays big dividends when you get ready to start implementing that system because the end users feel like they've had a voice in it 
and they're engaged. It's not just something that was thrown over the fence and say, this is the way you're going to do your work now. And they had no say in it. Yeah. It's, um, it's really be interesting. One of the things I, I want to see happen, I just don't know if it will, is the big value is when companies that are competitors, right, or service companies that are working with the operators or whatever, when they start sharing HS&E information, right? Because then they have bigger data sets and they can see bigger trends. What do you think? you think we'll ever get there? We are there to some degree. Uh, some of the, the industry groups, like the International Association of Drilling Contractors, they do share a significant amount of incident data with each other. You know, is it where it needs to be? Of course not. There's, there's still a lot of companies that feel like that's confidential information that can't be shared with competitors. But, you know, especially a lot of midsize and small oil and gas companies, they just don't have the data set needed to really do a, a good analysis in-house because, thankfully, they are small or midsize and they just haven't had the number of incidents. Right. Whereas a larger company or the uh, industry as a whole – unfortunately does have a large number of incidents and you can do a lot of data mining from that kind of a data set. So are we where we need to be yet? No. Are we moving in the right direction? Slowly. And this isn't something that's voluntarily that you do HSC, right? You have to be compliant. There's regulations that companies have to follow. Is the technology useful when the company is being audited? Okay, so to answer that question, is technology useful when you're potentially being audited or you're running uh, your own management system. Of course it is. It's one of those things that provides the employees and the people running the management system with a repository of information and data that's absolutely essential for auditing. Before, when we do an audit, we'd have to go and go open a lot of filing cabinets and go digging for information. And there's a lot of expense in that because your, your auditing time is lengthened. I've been on a lot of audits where... I've spent the vast majority of my time sitting in a conference room waiting for somebody to go pull data out of a filing cabinet somewhere. And that has a cost. I mean, that's one of the reasons why audits have traditionally been as expensive as they are is it's this auditor's time that's not well utilized because you have to wait for your auditee to go uh, open a filing cabinet somewhere and look for data that really should be at their fingertips. Brian, it is time for Red Wing's safety tip of the week. Well, what is your tip for this week? Okay, my tip for the week would be if you're responsible for emergency response plan in your organization, to get that emergency response plan out and make sure it's up to date. And this is a great time of the year to do it. It's the end of the year. It's a great time to update the contact information in your plan and to make sure that it's still you know, valid for your organization. Things have changed in this downturn uh, and we're finding that there's a lot of folks that have not updated their plans. So this is a great time to to get your emergency response plans out and update those plans and uh, and also to go ahead and consider some of these other risks that maybe is not included in your current plan. Yeah, I was just thinking that. We were talking earlier about how technology has changed offshore. If you have a, a response plan that's five or six years old, a lot of those risks have changed, right? So you're right, it's the perfect time of year to get out there and, and brush the dust off that thing and make sure everything's still relative. All right, so uh, we're getting close kind of to the end. Um, we need to talk a little bit about uh, the Red Wing Offshore Bag. Um, if you would like your chance to win your own Red Wing Offshore Bag, it's really, really easy to do. You go to redwingshoes.com forward slash podcast. That's redwingshoes.com forward slash podcast. Enter your information. We pull one lucky winner a week. This week's winner is Kevin Hyatt. He's the operation managers with Savage. Congratulations, Kevin. You have won this awesome Red Wing Offshore Bag. 
Hey, Mark, what about this LinkedIn group that you have? Yeah, if so if you listen to the show, if you listen to any of the other shows, go, go join our LinkedIn group. It's called Oil & Gas Global Network for a reason. You can just type in OGGN, it'll pop right up. It's the companion to all our shows. It's also where when we release something new, because we have some live events coming up, we have some giveaways coming up, we have some new podcasts coming up, it's going to be there first. So if you want to know what's happening first, and some of our live events are going to be very um, limited as far as seating, so we're only going to let X number of people in. If you want to be one of those first people, join the LinkedIn group. The other cool thing is sort of like the family of the podcast. So I've seen people share information. I've seen people do copyright for each other there. I've seen salespeople share contacts. So if you're in the oil and gas industry, go join the group. You'd be glad you did. Then if you've listened to this so far and you like it, can you please, please do me and Misa and Patrick, wherever Patrick is right now, a favor and uh, give us a review. The reviews are so important because we're trying to grow the audience. And one of the best ways to grow the audience is get in front of them. So a lot of HSE professionals don't know there's a podcast out there just for them. If you leave us a review, four or five stars, hopefully, but I'm okay with one or two. Um, if you leave us a review, when they search for us, they will find us. So you're actually helping your peers find the HSE podcast, which will be valuable to them. Then, can you please share the show, uh, 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 LinkedIn, uh, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Snapchat, uh, the all company-wide email, whatever. Once again, we're trying to grow this audience. We need uh, more people to find out about us. So please, please, please share the show. So Brian, before we get out of here, um, man, thank you, thank you, thank you. It's been a wealth of information, really good stuff, some thought-provoking stuff. If people want to find out more about your company, where should they go? So if they want to learn a little bit more, they can visit our website at www.ifogroup.com all one word.com. And there's a lot of information on there. There'll be a great value. Yeah. And folks, we'll put a link in the show notes so you can just click on it. Mark, you ready to get out of here? Yeah. So folks, don't be afraid to give up the good to go for the great. Tune in next week for another exciting episode of Red Wings Oil and Gas HSC podcast, a production of the Global Oil and Gas Network. Learn more from Mark LaCour at modalpoint.com. Connect with Patrick Pister at leanoilfield.com. From Houston to London to Dubai and beyond. project in Africa and uh, it was very uh, African queen kind of uh, trip you know going up an African river on a uh, on a boat I was taking a nap on a deck chair because it was a long trip up the river I was awakened by this horrendous odor and it was because some of the boat crew was cooking lunch on the boat exhaust stack (laughs) and uh, and lunch turned out to be a monkey on a stick they had a, a monkey literally stuck on a broomstick, and they were busy roasting lunch. And that is a memory that I will have with me forever. <laughs>